Listen up, real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and agents. You're in the right place. Unlocking the secrets to real estate investing and entrepreneurship. Welcome to the Titanium Vault, hosted by RJ Bates III. Here's RJ. Hello and welcome to the Titanium Vault. I'm your host, RJ Bates. Today I'm sitting down with Low Hornbuckle. Low, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, RJ, and yourself? Absolutely fantastic, man. So I uh, appreciate you taking the time to sit down with us today. And uh, why don't you take a second to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do? Yeah, so uh, thanks for having me. Uh, my publicist said that I still haven't gotten uh, the check for the appearance, so <laughs> I'll keep an eye out for that. Um, so my name is uh, Lo Hornbuckle, and I uh, own and operate a company called Sage Oak Assisted Living and Memory Care. We're a boutique senior housing company. So what we do is we specialize in um, uh, making small environments that are very intimate uh, for people that have um, you know needs of uh, daily care. So you know if someone needs a little bit of help with uh, you know dressing or, or, or food preparation or medication or even going to the restroom our staff takes care of all that and uh, we do it in an environment that's a home setting as opposed to these big institutional type settings that you often associate with with uh, assisted living awesome so uh, this is a unique topic for the titanium vault but um, you know you and I have discussed this a couple times about bringing you on and having you as a guest and and I want to talk about both the assisted living part of it, but also the real estate play that, that goes sure. along with that business. Um, but let's go back to the beginning. How did you get started and how did Sageoke become a, a business and an idea for you? Sure. Yeah. So um, there's a couple couple pieces to that. So first off, everybody's going to interact with assisted living one way or the other, right? They're, they're going to interact with it because they're going to have a family member that um, needs help. Um, they may decide like me to get into the business or they may be the one laying in a bed one day writing the check. So sooner or later, you're all going to interact with assisted living. So I kind of had some personal experience uh, with my family. My grandmother uh, was someone that I helped take care of and she eventually moved into assisted living uh, in Atlanta. Uh, so I kind of kind of underwent that process. I was the only uh, family member that was close by when she lived in uh, Louisiana. So it sort of fell on me Somehow the generation between us managed to all move away, and uh, so that was fun. Uh, and then uh, – so that happened, and then also my, my dad uh, at one point was on hospice, and, and, and the process didn't really go very well, and you know that made an impact on me. And at the time, I don't know that I knew that it was going to become a company, but I certainly – did have a, an impact on me when you see someone that you care about not getting the proper care that, that uh, you want everyone to have, especially toward end of life. And uh, – originally thought I was going to be uh, an apartment syndicator and then I was going to go out and, and do multifamily deals and and uh, kind of stumbled into the senior housing idea at a conference and then listened to a couple podcasts on it and then started to realize that I thought that from a real estate perspective, this is apartments 10 years ago. So I'm sure you've had a conversation or two on your podcast about how the multifamily market has certainly experienced uh, fraudiness and that it's a very hot market and that it's sometimes difficult to to buy properties because um, the cap rates have been compressed. Absolutely. And so we felt like that senior housing um, was sort of an opportunity to replicate some of the successes people have had over the years in multifamily, but in a whole different asset class that we thought was much more uh, recession-proof. Now, fun fact, in 2009, the only commercial uh, asset to have rent increases was senior housing. 
So it wasn't big. It was like 1%. But when everyone else is, is given concessions and giving discounts to survive the recession, senior housing actually did have rent growth. Right. So that's a very positive thing to think about when you're, when you're, when you're trying to ride out a, a recession or, or deal with a sort of economic instability. So when you came up with the idea and, and you made the decision that this is what you wanted to do, how did you get your start in it? Well, um, <clears throat> the first thing is because I have no background in healthcare, and, and like most of your listeners, I come from the real estate world. The healthcare piece was very intimidating, so um, I sought out some training, um, and uh, I'll be happy to um, to reference some of the training to to your listeners if they, they want to email me or however you want to handle that. But essentially, I work for an academy now, so I'm on the staff of that academy. But originally, I went to the Residential Assisted Living Academy out in Phoenix, Arizona, and they kind of train you on how to take, you know, a large house or, or, or a lot and convert it into a small assisted living facility. And I really like that model because number one, um, it's a reimagined use play. So sort of like if you're selling apartments to condos or you're getting agricultural land rezoned, this is taking a single family home and kind of converting into a house that would be designed for eight or 10 or 12 people that need assistance. So anytime you're able to reimagine the use of real estate, it can be a very attractive play. Plus it was much more manageable. You know, it's hard to imagine your first deal. You're like, I'm going to go buy a 400 bed assisted living facility. That's a pretty big uh, task to undertake for your first deal. So I thought that you know, kind of doing the single family home to assisted living conversion type of deal would, would allow me to get my dip my toe in the water, so to speak. And and frankly, just just fell in love with the process, really love what I do. And, you know, we've uh, managed to expand pretty quickly. And now we're now we're doing a deal that's um, is 200 percent as big as our current portfolio. So uh, it's definitely been um, it's been a very interesting journey. And, and it's really nice to not only help people, but also be paid well for it. Right. So let's break down like your first deal that you did. You go out, you buy a single family residence. What kind yep. of rehab do you do or how do you convert that? Like you use the phrase reimagine the real estate. How do you convert it to assisted living facility? Sure. So we bought a house on Forest Lane. Um, it was um, on a busy road. And so for families, um, you know, being on a busy road is often a, a detriment. So that's why you see those exterior lots sell for lower than those interior lots, sometimes about, you know, 20 or 30 percent. I know you're the king of that, so you probably know that better than me. <laughs> However, um, for us, being on a busy road is not really a detriment because you can get some eyeballs to the business. Right. So we bought a, a single family home on, on a, a busy road in Dallas, and <clears throat> we were able to negotiate a very favorable sales price. And uh, so the renovations, um, you're basically taking the house almost to the studs. I mean, you're going to reimagine, you're going to maybe keep the kitchen, uh, you know, the laundry room. But for the most part, you're changing all things around. So if a house has two living rooms, you know, living room number two becomes, you know, a couple bedrooms and a couple bathrooms. If the house has an attached garage, a couple bedrooms, a couple bathrooms, or at least one bathroom. So the idea is, is you take a, you know, three or four bedroom house with all this living space that's, uh, you know, designed for families. And now you're converting that house into, um, you know, multiple bedrooms and multiple bathrooms to accommodate, you know, in our case, eight people living in the house together. And then of course you, you having staff that come in on a shift basis. So basically, uh, you're reconfiguring the entire floor plan. You're also adding things like fire suppression, uh, fire alarm, um, and then also, in our case, access control. So we take care of people that have dementia and have Alzheimer's. And so you have to have a code to get in out of the property. So, you know, if they decided one day that they were going to you know, go for a stroll, you know, that we know they're coming and going and we can have a caregiver go with them or, you know, someone doesn't wander off if they're a little bit confused or agitated or something along those lines. 
what do you have to do regarding zoning for the property? In Dallas, if you're eight beds or less, um, the only zoning rule is you have to be a thousand feet away from a, a similar facility. So what Dallas does is they call this a handicap group dwelling. And so basically they have a list of handicap group dwellings in their database. And when you do a facility, you've got to be a thousand feet away from another facility that is a handicap group dwelling. That's the only zoning requirements they have. If you go over eight residents, so nine or more, uh, if you went to nine or 16, then you would have to get a special use permit from the city of Dallas, which means anybody within a few hundred feet would have the right to object. And it's pretty unlikely that the city council would grant you that exception because you have to be able to prove why going to 10 or 12 or however many residents you want to is is, is necessary as opposed to eight. So I guess their fallback position would always be, hey, we're allowing you to have eight people. You don't really need 10 or 12 or 14. If you want that many people, please go to you know a commercial commercial lot with the proper zoning. So I've never tried to apply for a special use permit. It's just too big an if. So when you're doing these business plans, that's too big of an if statement. Like, hey, if we get this, then we'll go to 12 beds. And so it right. just doesn't really jive very well when you're trying to raise money for deals or you're putting everything together. So you know, we just go after um, a very high end. So our, our average price per bed is a little bit above average. And we do that because we kind of go after a boutique model where we're like, hey, we're just a better model of care. And so we're able to charge a little bit more. So the eight, eight bed unit still works. So regard going back to the zoning, eight beds or less, is that pretty common with all of the major cities and markets that no. you, you don't have to have a special zoning or, or permit or whatever to do this? It varies drastically by by state and varies drastically by by city. So there's there's places all over the DFW area that have maybe a six bed uh, cap or some have a sixteen bed cap. So it just really varies dramatically. So a lot of this is as a local thing, where, where some cities are okay with this. The probably the care home capital of the United States is 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 the Phoenix area, and uh, they allow ten beds by state law. And uh, the thing about ten beds, it's an excellent business model because essentially your labor rates, like how many caregivers you're going to have and all that stuff is about the same for 10 beds as it is for eight beds. And that's your primary cost. So your ninth and 10th resident in, in say a Phoenix, they essentially are, you know, the cost of the bed, you know, whatever you make on that minus food costs, which are not very high. So that's mostly profit. So those, those, sometimes there's numbers that are kind of powerful. You know, if you go up to 14 or 15 or 16 residents, you're probably going to have an additional caregiver there to, to keep your quality of care uh, up, But if you're at 10 beds versus eight, there's not much difference. So we always recommend that when you're looking at markets to really kind of figure out what the regulatory environment is. Some places cap you at six uh, beds, and that can really be a challenge. But if you're doing very high end care, then you may be able to make it work. We've got we've got some students all over the country that are doing very well with six beds. But ideally, you know, eight or 10 is much better. I think 10 is kind of a perfect number. Anything above 10, the, the business is going to work very well. Um, you just have to make certain that you're, you know, small enough that you still differentiate yourself from the large 200 bed uh, facilities out there. Right. And let's talk about when you're analyzing the property itself. So like you said, most of our listeners are real estate investors. And so we all know how to analyze a fix and flip or a wholesale deal or buy and hold or an owner finance. When you go and you look at the deal, because I'm assuming that's what you have to do first is locate the location, right? The actual sure. real estate. How do you break down and analyze those, those numbers on whether or not it's going to be a good location? 
Sure. So one of the interesting things is, is that most people on listening to the podcast, I'm sure, probably approach real estate like I've got to get this good deal. I've got to do this. I've got to save this money. And so it's almost like the acquisition is the most important part of this process for a lot of people. Well, in my business, it's not the case at all. So if, if I happen to want a house and somebody else happens to want a house and they have intentions to flip it or to rent it or do whatever – and I plan to turn it into, uh, you know, an assisted living facility that might generate forty or forty-five thousand dollars in in, in uh, gross revenue a month. Who do you think can pay more for the house? Right. So that's one of the reasons why I initially got so excited about the business was because I was tired of, you know, standing in line with twenty other people, you know, writing my number down on the, you know, the silent auction. Here you go. Here's what I'll pay for the house, and then losing by five thousand, losing by ten thousand, or having some. Some person that you know watched a TV show and decided they were going to be a house flipper to you know basically steal a property uh, mm-hmm. that you know I thought they paid too much for. So at the end of the day, you know, hey, maybe it worked out for them, maybe it didn't. Now it's like I can bid more than you can a hundred times out of a hundred <laughs> because uh, I'm reimagining the value. So essentially, we're converting these pieces of property to their highest and best use. And when you're in the process of doing that, um, you can obviously pay more. So the way you analyze the deal is, I think the first thing you do is you find a loca- a city or a state or you know a county sometimes that you f- you think uh, has some demand and that has a regulatory environment that is favorable and then once you do that so you know obviously if I'm looking in a market that allows 12 beds versus one that allows eight I'm gonna obviously be able to pay a lot more for a big house that allows 12 beds and one that allows eight so a lot of it really uh, centers around you know finding the market first. Because the reality is, is that you could build this from the ground up if you chose to. Now, obviously, taking an existing single-family home if it's got certain characteristics, right? So we're not looking at three-story houses. We're looking at you know usually single-story houses so that people right. can have easy access and level floors. You know, we don't want sunken living rooms, and we prefer the garage to be attached because we can convert it into into living space versus a detached garage. So there's half a dozen little things that you look for. But at the end of the day, I mean, you, you really can pay full retail for a piece of property if it's the right property in the right location. And the number one thing you're going to be looking for is, you know, basically proximity to affluence, right? So these are usually most of our properties are in, you know, sort of prestigious neighborhoods in Dallas. And the reason why is because if you're going to be expecting someone to pay sixty or seventy thousand dollars a year per bed for your care, then you're going to want to be in close relationship to where the people that can afford to do that live because generally the family members are going to want to drive no more than 15 minutes to get to the location of where their loved one is staying that's a general rule now right. when you establish a good brand you know of course they'll drive a little further and if you if, you, if they think you give excellent care we have some people who drive 30 or 45 minutes we also have you know a couple clients who literally live out of town so they live in atlanta or they live in new york and their family member stays with us and so they jump on facetime or jump on jump on a little video chat but they aren't able to visit as much so when you establish a brand that becomes less true but in general 15 minutes is kind of the rule you draw 15 in a geo circle around your property, those are your customers. Gotcha. So, how many locations do you have opened up right now? So, we have uh, five locations. Four are uh, licensed, and uh, so we have 32 beds that are licensed. Um, we have 32 beds full, so that's good. 100% occupancy. You got to love that. Mm-hmm. Uh, a little bit of a wait list. Um, so, wait lists are not super common in this business, um, just because you know someone falls or getting out of rehab or. Uh, you know, they're, they're rehabbing from a fall or, you know, maybe a, a medical condition. 
uh, generally it's an event driven business. It's like, I need to move, you know, next week, next two weeks. It's not like we're going to shop this for six months or nine months. Like you see with some other types of, uh, types right. of uh, products. Um, and then we have a fifth, a fifth one coming online. It's the construction's complete. Um, we're just waiting for the state to come out to give us our initial certification. The licensing process can take sometimes several months. So, you know, whenever you go do these deals, one of the reasons why we offer additional education here is because, uh, I'd rather someone, you know, one of your listeners to pay for my mistakes or pay for mistakes and people that I learned from versus, you know, make them themselves. So it's kind of a process. You just got to kind of go through your checklist and follow the procedure and, there's a few pain points along the way, but at the end of the day, you know, within about a year from when you start construction, you can open up this uh, beautiful facility, start helping uh, people in your community, and uh, they'll pay you handsomely for it. Right. And on those five locations, have you tried to space those out to where they're not within 15 minutes of each other? So you're hitting all the different areas of Dallas that you want to be in? That's a really good question, um, and actually it's quite the opposite. Um, so if you think about it like this – if you've got an eight-bed facility, right, it's so much easier if it's actually relatively close to the other facilities, so you can kind of create an economy of scale. So actually, all of our all our facilities are grouped within 15 minutes of each other. Now, if you think about it, when you draw that 15-minute circle, you know, if one property is 10 minutes to the east of another one, then when you draw the 15-minute circle around that one, it goes actually 25 minutes away. You with me? Because you're extending right. – where you start to draw from. So yeah, we cover kind of a big area in the Metroplex, mostly central Dallas is what we focus on. Um, mostly because that's where I lived. And I, at one time was very involved in the day-to-day -day operations. So I needed to be relatively close by that's becoming less and less true. But the reality is actually, you want to be very, relatively close so that if someone um, is a good referral source for you, if there's a hospital that likes to refer to you, if there's a social worker, if there's a, you know, someone in your community that really likes what you're doing and is constantly sending you people, it's helpful that you're in that same area so that if they look at one property, well, I don't like this room as much or I don't like this location, then it's very common for them to cross shop or other properties. So and it also allows us to offer different inventory. So within 15 minutes of each other, I have, you know, a state minimum size room, which is 100 square feet all the way to one that's five times as large in a much nicer facility. So we literally can have, in some cases, a five or six thousand dollar a month difference in price within 10 minutes of each other. So what that means is, is that we have the ability to offer lots of options and choices. So when someone calls us, there's a good chance we have a solution for their problem. And of course, if we don't, we'll help them try to solve it another way. But we, we actually like being close together. So think about it like, you know, one of the reasons people like multifamily is because you've got all your tenants in one place. We just figure, hey, instead of, you know, a 15-minute walk around campus, you're just a 10, 15-minute drive in a car to get from location to location. Gotcha. So for the people that are listening and and they're curious how you know you're purchasing these properties and then you're doing a significant amount of rehab, what does the financing look like this and how would someone get started um, in this type of business and what kind of financing solutions are out there for them? Sure. So um, I can tell you what we did. I mean, we uh, we raised money. We did we did syndication. So we we hired a syndication attorney, just like you see with almost every major commercial project out there. We got as much debt as we could, but typically uh, they're going to, you know, give you 80% of the value of the house. So keep in mind the way these deals get underwritten is very different if you're buying an existing assisted living facility, right? An already converted, because there are people out there that are selling these things turnkey. Um, if they've got good books, then you may be able to convince a bank that it's an income stream as opposed to a single family home, right? So a single family home that generates $45,000 a month and you know, gross rents versus a single family home that someone's going to live in, you would agree that the appraisal process would be a little bit different, right? Right. 
So the challenge is if you're buying a distressed asset or you're buying an asset that is a single family home and you're gonna convert it, you don't really, you're not really able to prove the income stream beyond a projection. So um, typically what's gonna happen, you're gonna be very under leveraged in these deals. So you might do 80% of the, the appraisal value of the house. And then of course you're responsible for the other remaining 20%, the construction costs. And then the, uh, you know, you're gonna probably operate at a loss while you're leasing the property up. So you've got a plan for that. So generally what happens is these work really well as syndications. And one of the reasons they work really well as syndications is not totally, it's not uncommon at all to be able to find these deals that do a 20 cap or a 25 cap. And so, um, you know, for those of you who aren't familiar, it basically means the capital rate uh, is basically what kind of returns you can expect from the property. And, you know, a lot of times in commercial real estate, people get excited about eight or 10, and some of these deals can be closer to 20. So it's very easy when there's a big pie to split, it's very easy to, you know, split the pie, so to speak. So, you know, if you want to bring an investor in or you want to give them part of the business or even offer additional debt service to the investor, you can do that and the numbers still work very well. And then obviously you could you could formulate a strategy where as you create that revenue stream and then can go to a bank and demonstrate, hey, I've had two years of really successful finances and take a look at my P&L statement of the last couple of years, then you can. Um, you know, certainly refinance out and pay the investors back or, or lever up uh, by adding additional bank debt. So that's kind of our basic strategy is we're very under leveraged as a company now. And, and obviously, we, we prefer to use leverage when possible just because obviously it magnifies the returns. So our hope is, is that after, you know, we establish the couple of years of good financials that uh, some lenders can say, hey, this is not a single family home. This is a this is a business and we should evaluate it as such. So for people that are listening and they don't necessarily want to go the route of becoming an operator like sure. you have, are there a significant amount of opportunities for them to be those passive investors for operators like yourself? <clears throat> Absolutely. So I think there's really three ways you can do this. So the first option is you can be a passive investor in somebody else's deal. Of course, that's that has its own that's got some attractive features to it and it's got some drawbacks. The second thing is is that you can you can own the real estate and you can lease it to an operator. So your tenant is the operator, their tenants are the residents. So essentially you just have one point of contact, that's who your tenant is. You typically would sign something along the lines of a triple net lease. So they're responsible for everything. And generally you can hope to get sometimes uh, double the fair market rent. So, for example, if you think the single family home would rent for, say, you know, $4,000 a month to a family, you may be able to rent it out to that operator for, say, $8,000 a month because they're going to be able to put, you know, eight people or 10 people in that home. And it makes sense for them to do that. So that's one strategy for real estate investors is you can just own the real estate, let someone else operate it for you. And then the third way is you can do both. Hold on real quick because I want to ask a question, interject on that point. If you're doing that, are you expected – to do the construction on the property to get it set up for the operator, or are you still allowing the operator to do all of the renovations? Sure. So that would be a conversation between you and uh, the operator. So probably you do the construction because I imagine the operator would pay, you know, and, and the operator would cover a portion of the cost or something along right. those lines. Just like you see in commercial, sometimes you see build to build to suit, right? But sometimes right. you don't. So sometimes uh, a real estate owner is like, hey, I will build and construct this product exactly like you want, and it's just going to have corresponding rents to reflect that. You could do that in this space as well, or you could say, hey, here's a house. You're responsible for getting converted and doing all that stuff, and you're going to sign a lease with me. You know, So obviously, your lease is going to be higher the more turnkey you make the product. So 
you know, as an example, if you bought an existing assisted living facility that, say, was vacant, um, that was already kind of renovated, maybe needed a little light renovation, and you said, I want to do this business, but I don't really want to run the business. Let me find someone to operate for me. You could either hire that person yourself, and now you're the owner and the operator, or you could lease it to an operator. So there's a couple different ways you could go about that. Um, and obviously, one of the nice things about you know working with the National Academy that we do is that we are able to kind of network and market. And there's people out there that are you know they're in healthcare, they're nurses, they're social workers, they're physical therapists, or whatever the case may be. The healthcare thing doesn't intimidate them at all, but they are a little scared about the real estate. They are a little scared about the construction. So sometimes it's just a matter of putting two people together that have you know synergy, and uh, they go out and they they build a, a nice facility or or, or or several facilities together. And uh, you know, create that that uh, nice scale business. So you, at the beginning, you talked about part of the reason why you got into this business was because of your experience with your your father being in hospice and in those situations with your family. What are you doing different at Sage compared to those facilities and those experiences that you had? Sure. So the vast majority of people that live in assisted living are living in massive, you know, 100, 200 bed facilities. So the number one thing is, is that the environment is totally different. Uh, in the South in particular, the vast majority of people that we run into lived in their same home for 30 or 40 or 50 years. And for them to then move into apartment style living with other seniors can be really disruptive to their typical day-to-day -day life. And so if they came from a home, and then now they end up in an actual home and they have a room in that home, it can be a much easier transition for them. So that's that's the big key. The second thing is, is that we have uh, caregiver ratios that are much better than, than, than industry average. So we have two caregivers for eight residents during the day. So we have a one to four ratio, which is usually anywhere from double to quadruple what you see in large buildings. So we have you know more staff per resident than they do in those other facilities. The meals are home cooked, so it's not cooked in some cafeteria a building or two away. So you can, you know, hear the coffee percolating in the morning. You can hear the bacon sizzling. You know, it's you're interacting with that. So it's a much different process in terms of food. You know, it's it's a fresh cooked meal as opposed to something that was cooked 20, 30, 45 minutes ago. And then also, too, the main thing what it boils down to is communication. You know, our staff understands that, you know, uh, bad news delivered fast is is the best way to deliver it so if something does happen our staff is there to tell them what's going on they also um because we only have you know eight eight full-time employees on a typical location they get to know the resident on a level that's just almost impossible anywhere else so literally um we're the first line of defense so if a resident seems like they're a little off and maybe their behavior's a little off or they're not feeling well we're able to spot that so much faster than than other facilities because we have a baseline for who they are normally you know, there's a lady that if she doesn't have ice cream with dinner, I'm probably calling 911 because something's wrong with her. <laughs> and if funny. you don't know that, you don't know that. You, you with me? Right. Yep. I also know, I, I think you're being a little humble because I think you also have a huge impact on um, the, the level of care and, and how much you care as an operator yourself. I've seen um, several videos on Facebook where your wife has – gone and and played the guitar for for your you know your i guess you call them tenants residents um, yeah. residents there you go that's the word i was looking for uh but you know she goes in there and she plays the guitar for them and sings for them and just how hands-on you are I, 
it, talk about that and and why do you feel like that is important as an operator whereas you know so many people in business kind of don't take that little level of care well i mean for me um you know to be honest with you i've always felt like that if you any business that you want to be in that my mentality was you know if you want to be a boxer you got to learn to take a punch right and most people in business spend all their time trying to avoid taking a punch, but there's value in that. And so for me, I said, you know what, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to get involved and I'm going to get my hands dirty and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be involved in hiring and firing and caregivers and I'm going to do tours and I'm going to talk to families and I'm going to take complaints when we do have them. And, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be there sometimes when the resident passes away and all the things that are part of this business. Because at the end of the day, I really couldn't be here talking to you if I didn't have some basis of understanding there. And what that's allowed me to do personally is, um, you know, give that quality of care that you're talking about, but it also allows you to expand. And, and I appreciate the compliment. At the end of the day, my wife is the one singing and playing the guitar, so maybe she has the big <laughs> heart, and I'm just like the, the manager uh, of the of musical act. No, I mean, I really do think this business has changed me as a person. You know, I got into this uh, business for for capitalism reasons, and now I really consider myself a social capitalist. Uh, you know, I uh, I don't want to be involved in a business where you're worried about you know cutting food costs as opposed to providing quality of care. And there's so many places across the country where they're focused on expenses, expenses, expenses. How do we cut this? How do we cut that? That's not who I am. I'm a service guy, so I'm like, hey, let's give them great service and attract clients that want to pay for that service. So for me, you know, quality of care is is the number one thing. You know, we we say our business boils down to three things: great care, great food, and great communication. If you do those three things, then everything else kind of falls into place. So the reality is, is that my staff they do everything. I mean, the caregivers, you know, they're they're really they're heroes. You know, we talk all the time about you know you know, military and police officers and firefighters, but man, there, there are people every day that are taking care of people that have, you know, dementia and Alzheimer's and, and mobility issues and, and all kinds of just really, really tough situations. And they're, they're working eight, 10, 12 hour shifts, you know, for not a lot of money. So the caregivers really are the engine that drives this business. Um, we've got a great staff. Our management team's very good. So I'm, I'm the conductor, man. You know, I'm, I'm, I sign a lot of checks and, and spend a lot of money to take care of things. But at the end of the day, I think, you know, I appreciate the compliment, but my staff is really what makes this, this go. And it's, it's, it's the caregiver that gives hugs and, and love and cooks a good meal that really makes this process work. Well, it's funny, you know, about halfway through that statement there, you, you brought up other operators worrying about cutting expenses. But earlier in this interview, you also talked about that you're a hundred percent occupied. Right. I would be, I would be curious to see how many of those people that are worried about cutting their expenses are also 100% occupied. And uh, that kind of goes back to the analogy of, you know, stepping over the dollar to pick up the penny. Right. Um, you know, <laughs> great service leads to that expansion and that 100% occupancy and uh, the kind of growth that you've you've achieved. Uh, when did you when did the first facility for Sage Oak open? <clears throat> We bought our first facility in November of 2015, and it was a construction project. So it didn't actually open for, you know, about a year later. Um, the second facility um, that we actually began operations on was March of 2016. So we are on the two-year anniversary this month of oper being operational, so having our first client. Um, wow. So really, a very short period of time. Um, but yeah. this is all I do. You know, I'm not. Uh, 
you know, I'm not driving Uber on the side or anything. This is, <laughs> this is my 100% all my focus. So I made a decision, you know, I made the boxer analogy, you know, Malcolm Gladwell has that whole thing. You know, if you do something for 10,000 hours, that's basically the bare minimum for you to be an expert. I'm like, Hey, what if I just took all that time and try to compact it into a really short period of time? You know, so if you're doing something for 40 or 50 hours a week and that's all you do and you're consciously studying and consciously learning, you know, you can get your 10,000 hours in four or five years. So, you know, we're well on our way to really trying to, you know, be in the thick of things and really learn the business. So it's been it's been a wild it's been a wild ride and it's just a really exciting marketplace. And we've done this entire interview and we haven't said a single thing about baby boomers. Not one thing. This business is amazing now. Uh, but in 10 or 15 years, when the population demographic suggests that all the baby boomers who are the uh, you know, 66, 67 million people start to interact with this product when they're turning 80, 85, um, there's just not enough. There's not enough caregivers. There's not enough. Um, there's not enough facilities. There's just not enough of any of that stuff. So the supply and the demand is going to really, really shift in favor where the, where the demand is going to be very, very needed. Um, cause there'll be, you know, there'll be, I mean, there'll be so much demand that supply is just not going to be able to keep up. So we expect a lot of things like rent growth. We expect a lot of things like a lot of institutional money to come into this space. So I think, uh, senior housing is really on the beginning of a 10 year journey toward just absolutely exploding. And, uh, there, there are going to be big needs coming. And so we got to get people ready to deal with those needs. Well, that's kind of what my next question was going to be along those lines. Um, oh, sorry for stepping like, on your interview. I apologize. Hey, it, it's okay. I'll just remember who the host is. No, I'm just playing. <laughs> uh, I always like to ask people, where do you see your business in five years from now? So where do you see Sage Oak going and, and where do you want it to go? And where do you want it to be in five years? Well, I really hope the answer is the same thing. I hope what I see is where I want it to go, and I hope that's what happens. I hope those are all the same, but uh, it doesn't always work out that way. But we've really focused. We've really focused on. Uh, on we're focused right now on doing land development. So, you know, obviously, when you have an eight-bed facility, it's awesome. You know, the money can be particularly good. It's not uncommon for one single family home to produce one hundred and twenty or one hundred fifty thousand dollars in annual cash flow from one house, right? So, the business can be very good. But um, it's harder to scale that business because you really need, you know, a, at least three or maybe four houses to really kind of create that, you know, have an administrator, have a managers in place and have all the systems that you need. So you're not, you know, working yourself to death. So uh, one of the things we're focused on now is going in and taking land and building neighborhoods, essentially, of planned care home communities. So when you drive up to a neighborhood and it's, you know, five or six or ten single family houses – we're going to do the same thing, except each house might be a 16-bed assisted living facility on a shared campus. So instead of – so basically, we're going to steal the scaling model from big buildings, which is to have you know all your beds on one location. But we're going to maintain the quality control and the home environment by having each one be self-contained. So you might have five or six or eight 16-bed facilities all next door to each other, but in a way that it feels like a neighborhood as opposed to a commercial track the land and you have all the scaling advantages that you'd have with having everything on one location. But then you also have, you know, the fact that since every house is self-contained, if, if house three wants fish on Friday and house, house four wants steak, you're not, you can do that, right? If one house, you know, is diabetic, you could, you know, potentially have a house that focuses on cooking, you know, food that, uh, that are, that are appropriate for someone who has diabetes. You could have a Parkinson's house, you could have a kosher house, 
the possibilities are endless. And what it basically allows you to do is it allows you to anywhere there's enough demand to fill a particular house, you can meet that demand and be nimble. So it really is a beautiful business model, and we're in the process now of developing that in, in, a, in a couple of a couple of cities. And our hope is is that uh, that model will catch on and people will, will will mimic it because we just frankly believe it's a better better model of care. I'd rather competitors in this space. I'd rather more competitors in this space to take care of the people that desperately need it. So you talk about a couple of cities. Um, is Sejo going to expand outside of Dallas, and is it going to expand outside of Texas? Uh, yes, our, our our first development deal actually will be in Louisiana, and then uh, we're looking at a deal uh, in the northern, just on the very outskirts of probably what someone would call DFW. So kind of getting up a little bit further north, we're looking at some stuff up there as well. Um, you know, obviously, when you're doing a deal like this, you know, you, you've got some indicators. Basically, is there a need for senior housing? Is there a need for assisted living? Then it's is a land cost reasonable? Is there sufficient affluence to pay for the care? So you just kind of start going through these checklists. And so a lot of times you're going to be in, quote unquote, tertiary or B markets, right? Because you're probably not going to Manhattan and buying six acres. Would you agree with that? And you're probably not going to be able to do that. But you might be able to buy, you know, six acres in, you know, a tertiary market, you know, or, or a B market. So a lot of these markets that have these reasonable sized cities that have these little communities around them, you know, they have a ton of assisted living facilities out there, but they don't really have anything quite like this. So we're really trying to uh, change the model for the better. Uh, and we think that, um, you know, if you can combine scaling with the quality of care and you can put those two together, then that's when institutional money is like, hey, we can invest in these deals. These are the right size. They've got a better business model. And, uh, you know, we're going to probably put a little bit of fear in some of those big buildings out there because at the end of the day, we really, really feel like we offer a better model of care. And our most of our clients, you know where they come from? They come from big buildings and they weren't happy. That's where most of our clients come from. They go to a big building for whatever reason, their care needs don't get met the way they want them to be met. And so they end up coming to a small setting like ours. Um, And uh, I I didn't even mention this, but the uh, CDC came out with a study that if a facility is 25 beds or less, the fall risk for that person falls 50%. Wow. So that means if you go from a small building to a big building, the chances you're going to fall doubles. And obviously, falls are a tremendous part of this business. Preventing falls, responding to falls fast is just a big, big part of this business. And so if you can prevent a fall, you might keep a resident out of a hospital. You might, you know, falls can be deadly. And so stopping falls is a big part of our business model. And so, you know, the fact that the CDC has now confirmed through data that we can prove that we're, um, you know, certainly a better model for people that are high fall risks. So it's stuff like that that just give me a lot of hope that, uh, you know, the way we're doing business and the, the concepts that we have are really going to catch on. And, you know, sooner or later, these, you know, two or 300 bed facilities are going to be smaller and smaller share of the market. Right. You know, they're, they're They have a value. They have a role. There are plenty of people that get value and live in those things. I'm not anti big building. I'm just upset that there aren't enough options for people to consider. It'd be kind of like in single family homes if you had to choose between apartments or single family homes and you couldn't have one or the other. Right. Some people want apartments. Some people want single family homes. We need more small assisted living facilities to compete with the large assisted living facilities. So people that do need to live in a small environment have that as an option. Right. And when you talk about, you know, falls being deadly, um, nobody knows that better than me. My dad was in his mid 50s, um, watched the Dallas Cowboys play an opening night against the Philadelphia Eagles and was walking in his house that he had lived in for you know, 
30 years and slipped and fell and oh, man. The, and that's how we lost them you it know is. i mean uh, so uh falls can be deadly and and you're absolutely right um with you know the level of care that you're offering to your residents and um you know providing that alternative solution to the to the big um competitors that you have out there um Man, I just from someone who who doesn't know much about this space, uh, thank you for what you're doing. Um, it, it really is awesome. Um, it, it's funny because, and I'll share this. I, I want to wrap this up here pretty quickly. But uh, Lo and I met uh, years ago, and uh, this was before Say Joke ever existed or probably was ever thought about um, at that time. Um, I was wholesaling a deal and he showed up and he looked at it and, uh, that's how we met. And somehow after that, we became friends on Facebook and, uh, you know, I've, I've seen your, your journey from, from that time where you were, you know, either you were investing in real estate or you were thinking about doing it and, and to where you are today, man. Um, I, I just, I, I can't say enough about how impressed I am and uh what you've been able to create with say joke and uh i just want to congratulate you for everything that you've done well thanks for your kind words and uh, very sorry to hear about your dad and i can tell you one thing i have no doubt that that he's proud of you and a uh, fun fact that house that i looked at with you was actually going to be location number one so i was actually looking for my first assisted living facility which is why i came to check out that property that you're talking about so it, it would have been it was just it was ultimately too far i decided that i couldn't right been drive 40 it was, it was about 40 minutes from where i live and so i ultimately decided let me tighten up my uh, search parameters and so yeah that's we actually met because i was starting say joke so you didn't you didn't even know that there you go well, uh, for the listeners that are out there and they want to contact you, what's the best way they can reach you? Sure. So uh, probably the best thing would be by email. Um, so my email address is just my first name, L-O-E, and at, and then the company is Sayjoke. So it's lo at thesayjoke.com. So the, T-H-E, sage like the color green, S-A-G-E, oak.com. So lo at thesayjoke.com. They can shoot me an email. And if they want to learn more about getting educated in this space, we have a couple things we can help them with, including a home study course. Um, and then I'm happy to, you know, have a conversation. And of course, if you have any listeners that have family members that have needs, you know, have them give me a call. And if we're not the right fit for them, we'll certainly help them any way we can. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to uh, share about your business and about assisted living. And uh, I, I look forward to seeing the growth of Say Joke and uh, where you take your business. Well, thanks for having me. All right, man. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much for listening to the Titanium Vault with your host, RJ Bates III. For more info and to stay up to date, visit www.podcast.thetitaniumvault.com and on facebook.com slash thetitaniumvault. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review, and we'll catch you next time on the Titanium Vault.